0: Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to the end of the chapter today. And while you're turning there, I just want to say thank you to Pastor Jason for his messages these last four weeks. It's been very good to listen to him and uh, the things that he shared as well. And just so you know, uh, Jason will be speaking about a fourth of the time this year as we uh, trade off and give him opportunity to do that. It's not like it works out to once a month uh, because... Things tend to come in bunches. He'll be speaking when I'm doing a mission trip, for example, or as in January when I was teaching one of our elective classes for adults. But I think it's good for all of us. It's good for us to have different voices that speak and share from the Word, and it's uh, great to have somebody who can do that well and to be part of a preaching team. So uh, today we're going to be, as I said, in Hebrews 9. I'd like to read for us this passage beginning at verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living, this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. And he said, This is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. And nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. Let's pray. How great a Savior we have. How wondrous are the things that You have done on our behalf. And I pray that today that You would open our hearts and our eyes to see your grace, your mercy, your love, your forgiveness in a new and powerful way. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Why do Christians talk about the blood of Christ? And why do the Scriptures make so much of it? In the passage I just read there seven times, the word blood is used in reference to the cleansing of these things, both in the tabernacle and in heaven itself. And why do so many of the older hymns and even the contemporary choruses sing about the blood? I mean, some would say, isn't that a bit archaic? Isn't that sort of a... uh, pagan concept? Isn't that a little bit too graphic? Aren't we more sophisticated than that today? And there are those who would find it to be objectionable or a stumbling block even to them. Pastor Kent Hughes shared that when he was in college, he had a professor who mocked and made fun of Christians who believed such things. He, uh, one day in class, Uh, presented the words of William Cooper's great hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And you know the words, we've sung this before, that there is this fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And to know Christ, when we know Him, that is just such vivid imagery that He is using to describe what it is that cleanses us from all our sins. But this professor looked at that hymn and he kind of made fun of it and he said imagine those believers swimming in a pool of blood. He called Christianity a slaughterhouse religion and those who believed it Bible thumpers. And I've talked to people who think that the death of Christ or anything having to do with a sacrificial system is sort of pagan and they just don't like it so why do we talk about the blood and why is it so significant to those who believe in christ and why do the scriptures make much about the blood of christ well i think it's important that we know how to answer that question and we find that here in this passage number one blood teaches us that sin is costly sin brings death And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God placed Adam and Eve in that garden. They had all of these wonderful things that they could enjoy in that perfect relationship they had with God and with one another and the world around them. But there was one thing that they were not to eat. God said to them in Genesis 2, 16 and 17 that you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. It was a test. It was a test for them. Would they obey God? Would they trust His Word that what He said was true and for their good? It's really the same test that comes to us whenever we hear God's Word. Will we obey Him? Will we trust Him and rely upon Him? that his way is good. And on the day when they ate that forbidden fruit, they did not die physically immediately, but they did die spiritually. And death entered into our world. Adam and Eve experienced the consequences of their sin. They experienced alienation from God. They went from walking with God in the garden and enjoying perfect fellowship with Him to now hiding from God in fear. They experienced alienation from one another. Adam blamed Eve for what had happened. He even blamed God when he said that it was the woman that you gave me. It's your fault, God, that all of this happened. And Eve blamed the serpent who tempted her. And they experienced alienation even within themselves. For the first time in their life, they experienced shame and guilt. I mean, I know it's hard for us to think of living without that because we feel those emotions. We feel the guilt of our sin. We feel the war that is going on within. And they learned the awful truth that sin brings death. One generation after Adam and Eve, a man would murder his own brother. They experienced the consequences of sin. And yet even in that garden, there was a sacrifice that was made when God in His grace provided garments of skin to cover them. Sin is costly. Sin brings death. And blood also teaches us that the price of redemption is high. The psalmist in Psalm 49 said that no man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly and no payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay psalmist was talking about how we cannot atone for the sins of our own sins let alone that for someone else we can't pay that penalty it is too high it is too costly and the writer of hebrews will tell us that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness and blood there is a synonym for death but a particular kind of death. It was the death of a sacrifice or a substitute. We know from the Scripture that the penalty for sin is death, and someone must pay that penalty. But it is not just dying. I mean, you and I are all going to die, but our death does not atone for our sins. What is required is the death of one who would be free from sin and who would willingly die in our place. And that is why Christ came. In chapter 9, verse 15, the Scripture tells us that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. The mediator of a new covenant. What is a mediator? Well, a mediator is someone who brings reconciliation between two parties that are fighting with one another, if you will. In this case, it is between a holy God and a sinful man that our sins have separated us from God, that we are living in rebellion against God and against His will for our life. And Christ came to be that mediator to bring us together and to make peace. He's the bridge between God and man. And Christ is perfectly qualified to be our mediator As the one who is the eternal Son of God, He came to earth and took on human flesh to be like us, to identify with us, and to be our representative before God. And He lived an absolutely sinless life, satisfying all the requirements of the law. And He died in our place willingly to pay the penalty for our sin. That's why in the Scriptures, Paul will say in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, that there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And when the Scripture speaks about the sacrifice that Christ made for us, you can go on to that next verse. He talks in Romans 5.8 about how amazing God's grace is, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of the cross. Christ came and died for us. And He did it so that we might be forgiven. Hebrews 9.23 says that it was necessary for sin to be atoned for in this way. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with blood. It was necessary for the things in heaven to be purified or the way to be open for us to enter into God's presence. And what the writer of Hebrews makes so clear in these chapters that we have been looking at in the last few weeks is that the old covenant was temporary. It pointed to what was ahead. And it reminds us that an animal sacrifice could never take the place of a man who was made in the image of God. Only a perfect man could. Only one who was without sin. Who would do that? Who would come on our behalf? And Jesus Christ came and Christ's death was complete and sufficient once for all. Look at verses 24 to 26 again. He tells us that Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one, but he entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. For then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all time at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what does that mean for those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus as our Savior and Lord? You know, sometimes for us, it is hard to fully comprehend God's grace. And we need reminders of that. It's been interesting. I've been wrestling with a question as I've come before the Lord. I've been doing this for, I don't know, I had written it down maybe two, three weeks ago. And I was thinking about this. You know, I know that in the Scripture there is this day coming when we will stand before the Lord to give an account for our life, what we've done, whether good or bad. And for the believer, it's not for judgment, it's not for punishment, it's for our rewards. But I've been thinking about that. What's it going to be like? You know, and, and do I look forward to that day with joy, knowing that my sins are forgiven? Do I look forward to that day with fear and trembling, knowing that I'm going to stand before Him and I've not done everything that i could do and that there has been sin in my life and times when i've not done what he's asked me to do you know and i, I wrestle with that and i was thinking about it god what's the answer well it's been interesting in the last three weeks or excuse me uh, just about one week only i heard this same illustration three different times in three different settings and i thought okay god you're trying to tell me something here Maybe may be a little slow but i'm picking up on this A little over a week ago, I was at the Bethlehem Conference for Pastors in Minneapolis, and I heard Donald Carson, who's a professor at Trinity at our seminary, talking about Revelation 12. And in Revelation 12, we read that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He's the one who accuses us day and night before the Father's throne. And he says things like, you know, hey, did you see what Rick did? Did you see that? You know, and he calls himself a pastor. Or he thinks that he should be able to stand up here and speak on Sunday morning. And he beats us up. And he accuses us and he makes much of our sin. And there are times when in our life, you have felt that too, I'm sure, where you wrestle with that and you think, you know, why do I even bother? or you may be tempted to give up, or you may be struggling with sin in a certain area of your life, and you're wrestling with that, and you just feel the shame that comes from Satan who is that accuser of the brethren. How do we answer that? What do we say? And Donald Carson shared this illustration. He said, do you ever have a day that runs something like this You get up in the morning and maybe the alarm didn't go off in time so you're late. You get out of bed, you stub your toe, you know, you're starting off on the wrong foot. You get in and, you know, if you're a guy, maybe you cut yourself shaving or if you're a woman, maybe your hair just didn't work out right that day and you're late, you grab something quick for breakfast, you get out, you run to the car, you turn the key to start it and there's nothing and your battery's dead. And now you're going to be late for work and you got another problem here. And by the time you get to work, your boss is kind of grumpy and he says, hey, did you get that project done yet? Well, if you haven't got it done, you're going to have to stay late till you get that thing done. I need that. And by the time you're done with that day and all of the irritants that have gone on, you get home and you're grumpy, your attitude stinks, you're mad at your spouse or your kids or all of that, and you take it out on them. And when you go to bed that night, how do you pray? Or you might pray something like this. Dear God, this has been a rotten day. I'm not very proud of myself, and I'm frankly ashamed, but I really don't have anything to say. I'm sorry I've not done better. Forgive my sin. Bless everybody in the world. Your will be done. Amen. (laughs) And you kind of just do something like that, okay? But imagine then, say a week later, you wake up, you know, and you have one of those days when the sun is shining, it looks beautiful outside, you get up, you know, you had a great breakfast, you had time for your quiet time, you and your wife prayed together, you know, you started the day, and you get off to work, and the boss greets you cheerily, and, and uh, everything just seems to go smoothly at work. And you come home that day, you know, and the kids are behaving, and you have a nice dinner around the table with the family, and, and you go to bed that night, and when you pray you pray something like this. You say, eternal and matchless God, we bless you that in your infinite mercies and great grace you poured your favor upon us. And then you pray for all the missionaries you can think of and their children, and you pray for your family and your relatives and your first cousins twice removed, and then you meditate on the names of Christ that you can think of, and you go to bed that night and you fall asleep and you feel justified. And Don Carson said, on which of these two occasions have you fallen into the dreadful trap of paganism? He said, God help us. Both approaches to God are abominations. Do you not understand that we overcome the accuser on the ground of the blood of Christ? It's the blood of Christ that covers our sins. It's the only ground of our acceptance before God. And so many times we run on our emotions or feelings about the day and there are times when on the one side we can listen to Satan and he just beats us up and we just feel so unworthy. We are unworthy. It is the grace of God. It's the blood of Christ that covers our sins. And there's nothing we could do that could take away from His grace. And on the other side, you know, when we feel like things are great and it's going well, you know, and maybe we're coming there, the temptation is we can slip into spiritual pride and we can think, you know, man, I've been doing a lot for God here. He owes me one, you know, and I pray. And, you know, God, I really need You to come through on this. And it's not our merit. It's the grace of Christ. It's the blood of Christ that covers all our sin. And that's the only standing we have. And that's why in that passage in Revelation 12, when it talks about Satan as the accuser of the brethren, it tells us that the way that they overcame him was by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, by their faith in Jesus Christ. This is the only ground of our acceptance. And that is why we can never get very far from the cross. We overcome the accuser of our brothers and sisters. We overcome our consciences. We overcome our bad tempers. We overcome our defeats. We overcome our lusts. We overcome our fears. We overcome our pettiness on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. Amen. We need to hear that. And we need to be reminded that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That everything, all our sins, past, present, future, have all been covered, forgiven. There's no guilt. There's no shame on that day when we stand before Him. We will be like a child running home from the school bus and excited about the end of the day and ready to have some fun. And we'll be running toward Jesus enjoying our relationship with Him because it's His blood that's covered our sins. Isn't that a marvelous gift? And the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand how great is God's grace, all because of what He did for us. And thirdly, it is Christ who initiates the new covenant. Why do we need a new covenant? Well, it's because the old one didn't work. It was temporary. It was instructive. It pointed to what was to come. But it was also external. What we needed was a new heart. We needed this change to take place on the inside. And Christ inaugurated the new covenant when he died on the cross for our sins. And it's interesting how here in Hebrews, the word covenant and the word will are used interchangeably. Uh, It is used to describe or explain uh, this covenant in a way that we would understand. We're familiar with wills. Hopefully you have written a will to explain how you want your estate to be passed on to your children or to others. And so here he's talking that a covenant is like a will. And it is like that will in two ways. And number one, the person who writes the will sets the terms. I mean, you can't, dicker with the testator of a will you know you can't argue or negotiate or what the person wrote is what's going to be followed those are the rules and when you think about the covenant god made the rules we don't many years ago there was an episode on everybody loves Raymond that was kind of funny it was Raymond had come home and his daughter Allie who's maybe seven eight years old had been drawing a picture she had been to Sunday school and she'd been drawing a picture and she showed it to her dad and it was this picture of this wall of flames and then there was a man standing in there and he asked her what that was and she said that's a picture of hell And he said, who's that man standing there? And she said, that's you, Daddy. (laughs) He was kind of shocked and said to Allie, who told you that I was going to hell? And he goes, Grandpa did. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, Raymond goes across over to Frank and, you know, his house to talk to his dad. And he goes in there and, you know, barges in and asks the question, why did you tell my daughter that I'm going to hell? And he said, I didn't say that. She asked me what happens to people that don't go to church. (laughs) And he had not been going for a long time. And so, uh, you know, Raymond says to him, you know, well, would you go over there and tell my daughter that I'm not going to go to hell? And Frank's answer was this. He said, I'd like to, but I don't make the rules. Now, his theology was not correct in that it's not going to church that saves us. It's Christ that saves us. But he was right about one thing, that we don't make the rules. When it comes to things like understanding what sin is, God tells us what sin is. And he tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory, his holiness. He tells us that the wages of sin is death. And he reminds us of that punishment. He speaks about a judgment that is to come, a day when we will stand before the Lord and our sins will either be covered by the blood of Christ or we will pay for them ourselves by being separated from Him for all of eternity. And he tells us about a way of salvation, that there is a way that we can be forgiven and restored. And it is through His Son, Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. God makes the rules. And if we are to have a relationship with Him that is restored, then we need to come His way. And secondly, a will does not take effect until there is a death. And that is why Christ needed to die to initiate the new covenant and all of its blessings. And think of those blessings that are so wonderful that there is a way to have forgiveness of sins. There is a way to have eternal life. There is a way to have fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is a way to experience the joy of salvation. There is a way to know that we have the assurance of the new heaven and new earth and the resurrection of our bodies and life everlasting. And do you know That when we take communion, when we do that with a believing heart, every time we take communion, we are agreeing to the terms of the covenant. In verse 20, the writer of Scripture used that phrase that this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. It goes back to Jesus' words when He initiated the Lord's Supper and He said that this cup is the new covenant of My blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Every time we take of the bread, drink of the cup, we are saying to Jesus that I admit that I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness and my hope is in you as my Savior and Lord. And I take this cup in faith looking forward to that day when I will drink it again with you in your Father's kingdom. It's a beautiful time a time in which we reaffirm our faith in him and when you think about this will this will is the richest will that has ever been written there are blessings for all who will believe there are blessings that will last for all of eternity in fact it's going to take the ages and ages and ages to come for God to reveal the riches of his grace I'd rather have a part in that inheritance than any lottery on earth or any other will or inheritance that you could get. I'd rather know that I am a co-heir with Christ of all that he has. And here's the unique thing about Jesus and the new covenant. In legal terms, he is the testator. He's the one who writes the will or makes the will. And he's also the executor. He's the one who carries out the will. In his ministry before God, he is our great high priest who offers up the sacrifice on our behalf, and he himself is that sacrifice. Salvation is all of God. It's all of grace. There's nothing we could do to add to it. Nothing we can do that subtracts from it. It's all the work of grace. All that is left for us to do is to believe, to place our trust in him. And he ends by saying in this chapter that Christ will come again, this time not to bear sin that has been paid in full, but he will come to bring salvation in all of its fullness to those who are waiting for him. So why do we talk about the blood of Christ? It is because sin is costly. Sin brings death and blood reminds us of that. It is because the price of redemption is high. We could never do enough to earn our salvation. It reminds us that the blood of Christ is precious. It is the only thing that can wash away our sin and make us clean. And have you been washed in His blood? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this beautiful passage in Hebrews and for all that Jesus has done for us to accomplish our salvation. Father, help us to understand deeply in our heart how much You love us, that our sins are forgiven when we bring them to Christ and place our life in His hands, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no guilt or shame in that sense that keeps us from You. And Father, I pray that we would walk with You in fellowship, that when we do sin, we'd confess it to You and ask Your forgiveness and go on. I pray that we would walk in obedience, that You'd use us to be a witness for Christ in this world. But I pray most of all, that our response to You and Your grace would be one of love, that we would love You with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. As we close today, we don't have a final hymn, but I'd ask you to stand for our benediction. At the end of Hebrews, we read these words. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may He equip you with everything good for doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.